Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Carlotta Babello. Coming up, get your tent ready and a sunscreen. We're off to a festival. You begin to develop this relationship between the festival and the city, and particularly where you get support from the city authorities. Then you begin to find over time the festival begins to have impact on the infrastructure of the city. Festivals and cities are highly intertwined. While they bring diversity, culture and fun to our urban areas, festivals can also be a driving force for urban regeneration and to fuel the local economy. And in some cases, they can even become the thing that defines a city. So join me over the next 30 minutes as we explore the relationship between festivals and their host cities and even have a browse through history too. That's all ahead right here on The Urbanist with me, Carlotta Rabello. So welcome to this week's episode. We start today with one music festival that we here at Monocle have watched blossom over the years, Barcelona's Primavera Sound. This is a rather unique celebration as it flows beyond its premises and expands into clubs and venues across the city, giving festival goers a chance to support independent music venues too. This year, the festival spread over two weekends for its biggest edition yet. Our contributor Paige Reynolds met up with Primavera's Chief Innovation Officer Daniel Fletcher to get a guided tour of the main festival site and hear more about Primavera's continued expansion. If you're a music lover who's not so keen on wellies and teepees, you might have already heard of Barcelona's Primavera Sound. For the last 20 years, the Spanish Music Festival has taken over Parc del Forum, a sprawling concrete park that sits on the waterfront at the northernmost end of the city, as well as venues in the city centre such as Sala Apollo, Razmataz and Red 58. Eight days into the mammoth 12-day musical bonanza on a scorching Thursday morning, I hopped in a golf buggy with the festival's chief innovation officer, Daniel Fletcher. After heading in through the main access gate, we first took a look at how the festival has extended out from the centre of the site. As we kept growing, we had to expand to both sides of the venue. One is the one we're going to now, where we have stages that are mostly about electronic music and hip-hop and this sort of things. We have a beautiful stage by the beach there. Have you been there? Uh, Jeff Mills or... Uh, Jeff Mills, Honey Dijon. Wow, that was great and fun. <laughs> so we've just crossed over the bridge. We're on our way to the beach. Tell us about this part of the festival. Yes, this area is uh, specialised in electronic music and we also had uh, a K-pop uh, band playing here with Dreamcatcher and it was really, really fun to see a very young audience totally crazy uh, when they got on, on stage. But uh, in this area, we want to have uh, somewhere where uh, people who don't want to uh, stay all the time at the, at the main stage can come here and listen or dance to music and be in a calmer area. We try to make everything special this weekend. We have uh, painstakingly taken attention to detail of many different things. We wanted to pay an homage to the music clubs in the city that were heavily hit by COVID. And that's why we, we had 150 shows between weekends. So we're kind of talking about these events that happen 
during the week. So that's been a feature of Primavera for a while. You take over sort of clubs and venues in the city. Maybe you can explain a little bit more for our listeners how that works. Yeah, this is something that uh, has been going on for many years. We come from clubs, from running clubs, from DJing at clubs, from playing at clubs. And for us, it's a very essential part of the fabric for the city, the culture, the music scene of a city. And we, we don't want to be a festival that just runs for two or three days and, and then nothing else happens. That's why we try to bring part of the festival to the city. And that's something that we are doing at every other festival we have in Porto, the new festivals in Los Angeles, Sao Paulo, Santiago and Buenos Aires. We are also bringing part of the festival to the city. We have uh, the NTS Club. NTS is one of our media partners and really good friends. Uh, so we've just kind of come down, we've sort of zigzagged down towards the port and this NTS stage, it kind of looks like it's in a concrete hangover kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really good, a good point, yeah. It is. <laughs> so it, it's the only stage that's sort of within a, a built structure? Yes. Actually, it, it is a parking. It's a parking lot? Yeah. So it's fun because it, it reminds me of those parties in London in the 90s. The festival's NTS Club is just one of a number of smaller stages hosting more alternative artists and DJs. Further towards the port, you'll come to Wego, a stage where you'll be fist-pumping to Indiacs in the company of a few yachts. Beside that, you have Plenitude, the first stage fully powered by batteries charged with energy from renewable sources. There were a whole host of new quirks to discover in 2022, but one major change many festival goers noticed was the new look down at the main stage. This is the main stage. It's actually a twin stage, so that uh, the time that uh, lapses from one artist to another is uh, as short as possible. I mentioned before that it has a capacity of up to 65,000 people. So that's quite clever. So basically what we're looking at now is two stages. They're side by side. I remember in years previously it was on the same side, but they were opposite each other. So why did you bring them side by side? Because as we were increasing a bit the capacity this year, by doing this, our production team reassured us that it would be safe and would be comfortable as comfortable as could be a, a place where there are 60,000 people watching a show, of course. We're kind of talking about the fact that we have increased the capacity this year. I guess what have the challenges been of having another sort of 20,000 people? And I guess, do you ever think, OK, this is the cut-off point or kind of what are the conversations that are being had about that? Actually, the venue, we could go up to a bit more of 100,000. But we didn't want to sell beyond uh, an 80 to 85,000 capacity. We had some hiccups uh, on th- the first day of the festival because we had some issues at the bars and there were, there were long queues. That uh, was a horrible thing to see. But on Friday, we had uh, changed some processes uh, at the bars and reinforced more bartenders at, at the most busy bars. And on Friday and Saturday, everything worked uh, quite smoothly. And next year, you're not going to only be in Barcelona. So you thought, okay, we want to do two weekends again, but we're going to make it a bit different. What's happening next year? Next year, we are doing one weekend in Barcelona and the following one in Madrid. We would have liked to keep both weekends in Barcelona, but the city council was a bit concerned that having this every year would have uh, too much of an impact for the neighbours. But this double weekend works for us in terms of that we can be more creative in terms of uh, programming and, and 
doing things a bit in weekends. So uh, we decided, okay, what city is near Barcelona and has a great infrastructure to host people and to host uh, large events? Well, that is Madrid. So we are doing Barcelona, Madrid next year. For Monocle in Barcelona, I'm Paige Reynolds. While today festivals can be an occasion, in fact, it's common for people to plan entire trips around a certain festivity, well, that wasn't always the case. Innovations in transport and the way we get around were crucial to change the nature of festivals and how they impact urban areas around the world. So, how has the relationship between festivals and cities changed through history? I'm now joined by Margaret Gold, who's the co-author of the book Festival Cities, Culture, Planning and Urban Life. Maggie, thank you very much for joining us on The Urbanist. Let's start by taking a look at the very nature of that relationship. How has it changed over time? It's a question of how far back you go, because culture festivals and human habitations are kind of intertwined. So I guess they've always been important. But the thing which changes in more recent times is the ability of people to travel to festivals and to engage with festivals over a much bigger geographical area. So, you know, a lot of the festivals were related to religious or seasonal activities. They very much focused on the local urban population and maybe just the surrounding area. But something begins to happen in the 18th and 19th centuries where you begin to get the establishment of more formal festivals. And certainly in the second half of the 19th century, when you've got railways and steamship lines and all of that kind of thing and a, a larger middle class, you have the ability to visit a festival, you know, for a short period of time. And that begins to make quite a big difference for cities. And they begin to see festivals linked to visitors and tourism in a way in which they wouldn't have done previously. Is it fair to say that before these changes that allowed for people to travel to festivals, that festivals were the ones traveling to the city? So it became, it was even more of an occasion because of that. Oh, I think so, yes. And, you know, quite a lot of the performers and someone would be traveling around to different places. I mean, in in Britain, for example, there was what was sometimes referred to as a festival circuit going on in the 18th and early 19th century, where performers were moving around and there were mechanisms for booking people and, you know, organizing festivals. But it, the artists tended to go to the city rather than the visitors going to the artists. So I think it's that that begins to change in the 19th century. Now, let's look back to our urban environments. You alluded to some of the ways cities change in order to accommodate festivals and also what that signifies in terms of tourism revenue and investment, etc. I'm curious to hear a bit more about that and what are some of these ways that cities adapt to then be the perfect host for all these different festivities? Well, if you're looking to set up a regular festival, then generally speaking, those festivals begin in places which are capable of staging them. So places which do have venues, accommodation and so on. And if the festival is successful and regular, you begin to develop this relationship between the festival and the city. And particularly where you get support from the city authorities, then you begin to find that 
over time, the festival begins to have impact on the infrastructure of the city. I mean, if you take the Salzburg Festival, for example, it starts in 1920, and it starts with a simple theatre performance of every man in the square in front of the cathedral. I mean, they didn't have permission to use kind of venues at that point. And then gradually over time, they begin to use churches and so on, and they begin to create venues and performance spaces to accommodate the festival. And then, of course, that gives you opportunities to have other festivals and other events as well outside the original festival period. So over time, you do find these regular festivals having a kind of cumulative effect on the city as the city responds to the opportunities that the festival provides for it. It made me think there as well about, for example, the Venice Biennale, where because of the success of having that festival regularly, now the city invites as part of the festival to open up other parts that are perhaps disused or abandoned and uses the festival as an opportunity for redevelopment. So it seems like it can go both ways as well. Yes, I mean, the relationship between festivals and regeneration is a fascinating theme. And Venice is an interesting example because it begins in the Giardini, which is a park. It was an open space and they built the pavilions there. And, you know, you add more buildings to it and you get to a point where you can't really accommodate the festival within that. And they they move into the Arsenale, of course, which is the old shipbuilding yards, which were derelict. And by doing that, they kind of shifted the festival geographically towards the city. But it also almost set the tone for the type of regeneration that was going to take place in the Arsenale. So in case of Venice, over time, the festival has really had a major impact on the infrastructure and the structure of the city, really. Now, there's, of course, this other side to modern day festivals, which is exactly because it is easier to get to them. This often leads to a considerable rise in the amount of people in a population that suddenly is in a city at a given time. And this is a debate that we were just talking about Venice that I know happens a lot in the city of Venice because of the Biennale and other festivals. Barcelona is another one that because of an array of music festivals often debates what to do with over-tourism. So what is a way of, I guess, countering this negative effect and the impact it has on cities? Yes, it's a difficult one. I mean, the backlash to festivals is something which is relatively recent, but certainly the way in which festivals take over streets, public spaces, parks and so on, has caused some disquiet. Edinburgh is a good example of that, although some of the questions were very much around the Christmas festival and Hogmanay and the impact it had on Princess Street Gardens. I mean, it's a two-edged sword, isn't it? You know, for Venice, the Biennale is seen as a good type of tourism, you know, bringing in people who stay in the festival, spend money in the city and contribute to the city. The problem Venice has, of course, is the day visitors who flock in and flock out, aren't staying in the city, aren't spending money in the city, aren't going into the visitor attractions or the historic sites or the festivals. So Venice sees the Biennale as kind of good tourism. It spreads visitors around the city rather than concentrating them in the popular tourist hotspot in the centre. And of course, because the Biennale 
the art and the architecture anyway take place over such a long period of time you know from may to september it kind of helps spread the visitors throughout the year as well as throughout space so there are some good aspects to the festival as a type of tourism but i know even in venice there's been some recent developments trying to restrict landlords using their uh, properties for exhibition spaces because they're concerned about the availability of property for rent and worried that property that could be turned into a residential accommodation is being used you know as exhibition spaces and that kind of thing so there's those sorts of tensions going on the whole time and maggie perhaps just finally we heard so many different examples from city's true history so i guess let's leave this on a positive note and what are in your opinion some good examples of a city and festival relationship I mean, if you take Edinburgh, despite some of the ups and downs, you know, the relationship between the festival and the city there has become very deep and positive in many ways. The city, if you like, embraced the opportunity to stage the International Edinburgh Festival back in the 1940s. The initiative came from outside the city. Rudolf Bing from Glyndebourne, who was looking for a city to host a festival that could take Glyndebourne, was actually wanting to have it in Oxford initially. It was the city he knew and where he'd lived. Edinburgh was another city he saw as a possibility because it had venues and it had hotels and it hadn't been too badly damaged in the war. But the city kind of grasped the opportunity and ran with it because they saw, you know, the advantages it would have for the city having a regular festival bringing in visitors. And that became really quite important for the city. And of course, something quite remarkable happened in Edinburgh in that, you know, by the time they opened the first festival in 1947, you had a film festival going at the same time and the origins of the fringe. And those two were deliberately timed to coincide with the international festival. And from there, you had other festivals springing up in the city as well, so that you now have a situation where it's a city associated with culture. It's a city where artists of all descriptions want to live and work and are able to make a living in the arts in Edinburgh. They don't have to leave and go to other cities in order to make a living. It means that you have a lot more cultural activity going on. The culture feeds into the hospitality and other sectors at other times of the year. So the relationship between the festival and the city has, generally speaking, worked quite well. Maggie, thank you. Margaret Gold there, the co-author of Festival Cities, Culture, Planning and Urban Life. This is The Urbanist. Now, not all festivals have to be cultural. In Hong Kong, a particular sporting event takes over the city and is perhaps the most anticipated occasion in its events calendar, the Hong Kong Sevens. Monocle's Asia editor, James Chambers, has the story. Hong Kong is famous for being a concrete jungle and few sites better capture this contrast of grey and green than Hong Kong Stadium. This 40,000-seater sports stadium is only a stone's throw from the major shopping district of Causeway Bay. But at the same time, it is surrounded on three sides by lush green hills that loom large over the spectator stands. Originally built by the colonial government, Hong Kong Stadium was the venue for a famous fundraising concert in 2003 that saw an all-star cast of canto-pop singers take to the stage 
to help their hometown recover from the SARS epidemic. It has been almost 20 years since then, and Hong Kong Stadium could be back in the spotlight as the city looks to bounce back from over two and a half years of COVID-19 border closures and announce to the world that it's back in business. The difference this time around is that a festival of sports rather than music is being used to deliver this message, the famous Hong Kong Rugby Sevens. Hello and welcome to Hong Kong for the 15th annual Cathay Pacific Hong Kong Bank Invitation Sevens. Hong Kong has hosted an annual Sevens tournament since 1976, and the majority of these events have taken place at Hong Kong Stadium. Rugby Sevens is a shorter, faster and more fun version of the full 15-a-side game. International teams from the likes of Fiji, New Zealand, Australia, England and South Africa compete in a touring series of tournaments that take place in cities across the world. But nowhere comes close to the mania and mayhem of Sevens Weekend in Hong Kong, which usually takes place in late March or early April and takes the entire city by storm. Fans fly in from all over the world, hotel rates go through the roof, and companies splash out on lavish hospitality. Over the course of three days, a scrum of revelers packed the streets that surround Hong Kong Stadium, wearing a dazzling mixture of colorful rugby jerseys and crazy fancy dress costumes. And then at night, the festivities continue to the bars of nearby Wan Chai, before spilling and stumbling out across the rest of the city. What actually happens on the pitch has always come second to the party atmosphere in the stands. And there are plenty of local attendees who have zero interest in watching rugby during any other weekend of the year. The Hong Kong Sevens is a meet-up point for old friends and a rite of passage for new arrivals. Plenty of international kids who grew up in the city tell tales about sneaking into the Sevens as teenagers and getting drunk for the first time. That's how things used to be, anyhow. Hong Kong's flagship event has not been held since 2019. It was cancelled again in April this year, but the government is keen for the tournament to go ahead in November as part of a bigger plan to relaunch Hong Kong as a global financial centre. A list of senior financiers from around the world have been invited to attend a banking summit, and the Rugby Sevens is being used as a sweetener to lure them to come to the city in person. Whether it happens this year, next year, or in 2024, the return of the event is certain to be celebrated wildly in Hong Kong. This former fun-loving city has been largely festival-free since the pandemic began, and there can be no better way of blowing away the COVID-19 cobwebs than the return of the raucous Rugby Sevens, even if the expat community is dwindling in number by the day and the city's strict quarantine requirements may deter the travelling masses from joining the party. However, the days of the Hong Kong Stadium giving the city a lift are sadly numbered. The ageing sports ground is creaking and cramped. Every year, there's a mad scramble among fans for sold-out tickets, and several rugby teams have to be squeezed into each changing room. A new sports stadium is currently being constructed in Kowloon, and the Sevens is expected to move there by the middle of the decade. Located on the site of the former airport, Kai Tak Sports Park will have more seats, more corporate boxes, more training areas, a retractable roof, flexible pitch services, and plenty of the other bells and whistles that you expect to see 
from a modern multi-purpose sports stadium. Meanwhile, Hong Kong Stadium will be reduced in size and repurposed for smaller community events. The organizers of the tournament and the teams are both excited about the move, but it'd be difficult to transport the same fan experience to a brand new location on the other side of Victoria Harbour. The most iconic festivals around the world tend to develop a long attachment to a particular place in a particular city. And the Sevens at Hong Kong Stadium has built up a very unique position in this very unique concrete jungle. For Monocle in Hong Kong, I'm James Chambers. And finally today, it's time to head over to the beach. Well, sort of. If there's one event that truly signals summer is underway in the French capital, it's the festival Paris-Plage, or Paris Beaches. Every summer, the festival takes over the riverbanks of the Seine and transforms it into a beach resort. Think parasols, sun loungers, and even access to the water. Here's Monaco's contributor, Julia Webster Ayuso. Few Parisians look forward to summer in the city. The French capital is notoriously not built for the heat, and before the dreaded canicule arrives, the city's train stations and roads prepare for an avalanche of holidaymakers, eager to leave behind their cramped apartments until September. But not everyone is lucky enough to escape the city's sweltering heat, and with heat waves getting worse every year, the city council has been trying its best to make summer bearable and even enjoyable for its inhabitants. This has mostly taken the form of one successful project known as Paris-Plage, a festival that transforms the banks of the Seine into an urban beach during the months of July and August. Parasols, deck chairs and palm trees scatter the Parc Rive de Seine, a promenade along the river inviting people to linger in the shade, close their eyes and feel like they're somewhere more exotic. There's even a section between Pont Neuf and Pont de Sully that becomes an actual artificial beach with 5,000 tons of sand covering 3.5 kilometers. In the 19th arrondissement, the Bassin de la Villette, which connects Canal de Lourc with Canal Saint-Martin, turns into a center for water sports and activities for families with canoes, paddle boards and pedalos available for hire. It's also the only part of the river that is open for swimming. In 2017, three pools of different sizes accessible for free we're built into the canal with water clean enough for a much-needed dip. Over the years, the festival has extended to include a whole range of free fitness classes, concerts, outdoor cinema events and exhibitions. This year, Franco-Italian festival La Dolce Vita sur Seine will take over a space on the Ile Saint-Louis, while publishing house Delcourt Soleil will host an outdoor comic book library for those looking for the next canal-side read. Plenty of businesses also join in every year. In the evening, boats, restaurants and kiosks along the Seine come alive with jazz bands, dance classes and stand-up comedy shows. One popular hangout is near the Pont Louis-Philippe, where people gather, pastis in hand, for a game of pétanque that momentarily transports them to the picturesque villages of Provence. Now in its 21st edition, Paris-Plage was started by the former mayor of Paris, Bertrand Delanoë, who wanted to give the city's hard-working summer residents a beach-like experience right on their doorstep. 
With few people commuting from the suburbs, he promised closing off one of the main thoroughfares, the Voie Georges Pompidou, to traffic so that Parisians could make the most of the Riverside Expressway. Despite skepticism from many local politicians, the initiative was a huge success. The 2003 heatwave quickly helped make it a popular fixture on the Paris calendar, and over 5 million people take advantage of it every year. Other cities such as Berlin, Brussels or Prague have since copied the idea, and in 2018, the banks of the Seine were completely reclaimed by pedestrians thanks to Mayor Anne Hidalgo's anti-pollution policies. Paris-Plage could get a huge boost in the coming years if the city succeeds in providing Parisians with more green spaces and swimming spots. Hidalgo is not the first mayor to promise swimming in the Seine, but the 2024 Olympics are being held up as the big turning point, with the river and its banks playing host to several competitions, including the Olympic triathlon and other swimming events. This ambitious project has shown that, while the city still has a long way to go, bringing a bit of joie de vivre to the Parisian summer is possible. Forget the crowded beaches, nothing beats watching the sunset behind the Eiffel Tower when you've got Paris all to yourself. And that brings us to the end for this week's episode of The Urbanist. For more sunny inspiration, including our quality of life survey ranking the top 25 cities in the world, pick up a copy of the latest July-August issue of the magazine. You can find us in all good newsstands and, of course, by becoming a subscriber at monocle.com. Today's episode of The Urbanist was produced by myself and by David Stevens, and David also edited the show. To play you out of this week's episode, here's Chuck Berry with Festival. Thank you for listening, City Lovers. Having a nationwide festival for 14 days and nights. Out of 54 bands on a riverboat spotting the lights. <laughs>